Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. Uh, I am thrilled and honored today to be sitting down with a very special guest, Mr. Noam Chomsky, who is an emeritus professor at MIT and a professor at the University of Arizona. Noam, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Um, and in honor of the namesake of the show, I'd like to start with a very general question and topic. Um, what, in your view, is the proper definition of money? And how do you see the proper role of government in money? Well, money is an accepted mean, means of exchange as it's nothing in itself. It's based on trust and uh, willingness to agree to let this particular means of exchange be used in some community. There was a time when it was theoretically backed by some fixed uh, commodity, usually gold, but that again is based on trust. Why should anybody care about that particular mineral? Uh, so it's a convention that says, let's accept this as the means of exchange. By now, most money is just something going on in the, uh, uh, inter, inter, on the, you know, in the uh, electronic uh, media. It's not a medium at all. The role of government depends on what kind of society we have. If uh, there's no general answer. Uh, I mean, you, there's a debate, has been a debate. It's, if you look at the concrete cases, so let's take uh, the last 45 years, uh, roughly. The, as you recall, I'm sure when Ronald Reagan's inaugural address, uh, it answered this question. It said, government is the problem, not the solution. We have to reduce government to the minimum his own administration uh, acted in the opposite way. Uh, the share of government in GDP actually grew, but the distribution of the way government worked changed. Uh, the scale basically didn't change, but the functions did. And uh, that was perfectly predictable from his from the framework that he was developing, that he was expounding the so-called neoliberal framework in which it's not government that grows or shrinks, but uh, the role of government shrinks. What are government decisions? Are government decisions to uh, be uh, develop uh, social democratic uh, welfare state, say, on the style of the New Deal, or is the role of government to support uh, private power and extreme wealth, essentially what it amounted to. What's called neoliberalism has a definition, but uh, if you look at it in practice, it's just class war. And that was pretty obvious from the start. The uh, uh, the economic guru of uh, the Reagan administration, Milton Friedman, was very clear and plain about it. 
when you follow Reagan's precepts, government is the problem, uh, that doesn't make the decisions go away, just puts them in other hands. So instead of being in the hands of government, which is to some limited extent accountable to the population and responsive to popular pressures and uh, demands, you shift from there to private unaccountable power has no, and uh, Milton Friedman explained exactly what its role is in a famous article. He pointed out that uh, speaking of corporations, which is the central component of the private system, he uh, said that the role of a corporation is the sole single role of a corporation is to maximize profit for shareholders and of course that means indirectly to managers and CEOs, stock options and so on. That's the sole responsibility of corporations. It's rather curious view when you think about it because the right to incorporate is a gift from the public. The government provides, you want to incorporate, the group people want to incorporate the government that is the population provides you with benefits like limited liability, others. You don't want those benefits, you don't have to incorporate. It can be a partnership. But if you take the gift, Milt Friedman says there's no responsibilities to come along with it. Just take the gift and run away with it. And from then on, your only responsibility is essentially greed. Well, that shifts the role of government, doesn't end it. It shifts it to sponsoring greed. That's essentially what it does. So if you look at the years that followed, that's exactly what happened. We moved from that point on into uh, what some economists have called a bailout economy. Mm. The economy shifted substantially to uh, from manufacturing, production to finance, a huge part of the economy now is finance, which not really doesn't contribute to the economy. It's just, uh, you know, things, electronic things shifting around from one hand to another. The, uh, and it, uh, during the previous period, so-called regimented capitalism of the fifties uh, and the sixties, uh, there were no, uh, there was finance, of course, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, a bank was a place where if you have some extra money, you put it there, they lend it to somebody to start a business or send their kid to college or whatever it may be. Uh, there were essentially no financial crashes. The financial system was fundamentally serving the economy. Uh, that changed radically after Reagan. Uh, you started right away having financial crises and bailouts. And that's why it's called a bailout economy, not just for financial corporations, also for manufacturing corporations. So in 2009, uh, President Obama virtually nationalized the auto industry and uh, reconstituted it through government subsidy. So you have a system of uh, 
uh, uh, bailout, government subsidy, uh, and so on to sustain the economy that was developed. Uh, the population loses badly. We even have some measures of that. So the, the Rand Corporation, a highly regarded, uh, reliable research outfit, uh, did a couple of months ago, did a study of the uh, amount of money that was the wealth that was transferred, their words, from the lower 90% of the income scale, the middle class, working class, the poor, transferred from them to the very top of the wealth scale, actually mostly to a 1% or even fraction of 1% of the population. Uh, their estimate is close to $50 trillion over 40 years. That's a not trivial sum. And the top 1% of the population, uh, their income share changed from 10% to 20%, which is a spectacular amount for 1% of the population. Uh, the tax system was revised so as to benefit the extreme wealth. I think last year my, under Trump was the first time in over a century that billionaires uh, have paid a lower tax rate than say steel workers. Uh, that's, uh, it's all, it's all government policy. I mean, these things don't happen by laws of nature. Uh, uh, also, Reagan also uh, essentially opened the spigots to uh, all sorts of shenanigans that were illegal before, like uh, tax havens, shell companies, uh, uh, many devices were uh, developed to allow corporations, businesses to uh, uh, avoid any responsibility to the public and simply enrich themselves. The Pandora Papers that are coming out now give you some indication of that. Or take, say, the world's largest corporation, Apple. I think it was today they came out with their profits for last year, some astronomical sum, I've forgotten the number. Uh, they don't have to bother paying taxes. Uh, they set themselves up in Ireland and where there's low tax rates and figure out ways not to pay the taxes there. Uh, they actually by now don't even make their money in manufacturing. They've shifted under Tom Cook, they've shifted uh, policy from production. I mean, they still produce, but they shifted the emphasis from production to uh, finance and rent. Rent means you make money off the patents that you have. Mm -hmm. You manufacture in China, they pay you uh, for the, what are called the intellectual property rights. It was instituted under Clinton, the World Trade Organization rules, which are radically anti-free market. They're called free markets, called free trades, radically anti-free trade, uh, very uh, extensive, uh, in a patent regime which never existed in the past, uh, not only product patents, but process patents uh, for long periods. And uh, this is a, a fantastic interference with 
free trade, but very good for the corporate sector, increasingly monopolized. Uh, so uh, you uh, have a system where, uh, so take Apple again, turns out that you make a lot more money by financial speculation than by improving your computers. So in fact, the computers, may they may add some bells and whistles, but essentially they don't improve the computers to be more workable. But they do make a lot of money in rent and in financial speculation. It's a new kind of, different kind of economy. Uh, and uh, these are all policy decisions. They don't, uh, they were explicit, they were pretty clear at the beginning of the Reagan administration. They've been pretty much followed by his uh, successors. So take, say, I mentioned Clinton, but take Obama. Uh, Obama came in at the time of a major financial crisis, one of the series of crises that have taken place since the neoliberal regime was in installed. Uh, Reagan actually left on a huge crisis, the housing crisis. The, uh, uh, the savings and loan crisis. Saving and loans yeah. crisis. Then uh, Clinton left on a high tech crisis, mm. not a severe. And then there are others. And finally came the huge housing crisis of 2008, collapse of the housing boom. and then the financial crisis, and that was serious, almost like the Great Depression. Uh, the government had to step in with huge infusion of uh, uh, tax money to rescue the collapsed capitalist economy. So take Obama. Uh, when he came in, the Bush administration had just passed the TARP legislation, which was uh, the, a bailout legislation. It had two parts. Uh, one part was to bail out the perpetrators of the crisis, uh, the banks, uh, uh, investment firms, uh, insurance companies that had like AIG, uh, all involved in predatory loans and uh, various uh, complex devices, derivatives of various kinds to scatter and spread the responsibility so they could make money but not take responsibility. They made a mint and then of course it all crashed. So now you have to bail them out. That was one part of the funding. There was another part uh, to uh, do something for the victims, people whose homes had been foreclosed and lost their jobs and so on. Well, actually only half of the legislation was ever implemented. It was so grotesque that the inspector general of the treasury department, uh, Neil Borofsky actually wrote a book about it, con condemning what happened, several op-eds. But that's the way the system works. It's a system geared to class war and it's been effective. $50 trillion in 40 years is not small pennies. No, not at all. Um... And the time frame we're laying out here lines up nicely with us abolishing the gold standard internationally after the, the infamous Nixon shock in 1971. So perhaps I could ask you about, you know, to what degree has going off the gold standard effectively unrestrained government deficit spending 
um, which, which itself, I mean, enables governments to effectively not be accountable to citizens or to be less accountable and that they can just print money at infinitum to fund these policy decisions. And, and it funds the bailout economy you're describing as well. So what is the role of gold or going off the gold standard over the past 50 years? It was a, couldn't be maintained. It's, uh, it strangles the options for government to do the things it has to do. But the question is, once you free up the options, what does government do with them? And if you look over the year since Nixon, it's pretty, it's pretty systematic. When the Republicans come in, they create a huge deficit. Democrats follow them. They have to somehow deal with it. Uh, Dick Cheney, when Trump was blowing huge holes through the deficit, uh, Cheney explained that Reagan taught us that deficits don't matter. In fact, Reagan created a huge uh, uh, deficit, but it didn't matter. He was funding the wealthy and the uh, powerful and the military system, so that's okay. Uh, Clinton actually reduced it. Uh, Bush came in, blew it up again with his huge tax cut for the rich and war expenses. Obama kind of somewhat reduced it. This is the regular policy. Mm. Uh, the Republicans are uh, don't care. You know, they just want to their fundamental program. Not all, not always in the past. This is not true of Eisenhower, but the modern Republicans are basically they basically have one commitment serve the very wealthy and the corporate sector and that's if that creates a huge deficit it's no problem reagan taught us that deficits don't matter so say take the trump years uh, uh his uh, big tax scam a uh, huge gift to the very wealthy in the corporate sector stabbing everyone else in the back of course, that punched a hole in the deficit. Uh, there were pretenses that it was going to trickle down and increase investment and so on, but the usual pretenses, none of that happened. It, uh, and notice that the Republican Party today is very explicit about it. Uh, they have the current Republican Party, McConnell's party, has established what they call red lines for any legislation that they might consider. But one of the red lines is you cannot touch the Trump track tax cut. That's one. Another interesting one is you can't fund the Internal Revenue Service. It has to be defunded. That's a good reason for that. What does the IRS do? It goes after tax cheating. Uh, the guy who hands in his 1040 doesn't cheat on taxes. There's massive tax cheating, but among the very wealthy. So therefore, we can't touch that. You've got to cut that out. And it's very similar to uh, the laws that the business community is managing to push through the through one of its major lobbies, the ALEC, the uh, American Legislative Exchange Council, the major business lobbies, works at the state level to write legislation. And if you take a look at the legislation, it's very instructive. So for example, one 
there's a good deal of wage theft in the United States. Uh, businesses just don't pay the wages or don't pay overtime and so on. So one of Alex's uh, major legislative programs, which they've managed to pass through lots of states, is that you can't punish wage theft and you can't even investigate it. That's like defunding the IRS. Defunding the IRS, of course, is far greater in the scale of the robbery that it permits. But uh, it's very open and blatant. There's nothing hidden about it. Of course, the rhetoric is we're the working class party. You know, we care about people and so on. But you never pay attention to rhetoric. You look at policy. So getting off the gold standard is a necessary thing to allow the society to function properly. But then the question is, what do you do with it? Do you, do you establish, uh, take, say, social justice issues? It's worth mentioning that though the United States is, by reasonable measures, the richest country in the world, has extraordinary advantages that no one else has on social justice measures is a serious laggard way behind other countries. Take something as essential as health care. I mean, just about every country has some form of universal health care. Uh, the US pays about almost twice as much per capita as other OECD countries in health care and has some of the worst outcomes. If you've ever had to deal with the healthcare system, you know why. You go into the emergency room. Uh, first of all, you spend half an hour trying to figure out if you're, what your insurance is and are they going to cover it. And then it turns out there's some small print you didn't notice, which means they won't cover it. And, uh, in fact, a lot of the bankruptcies in the United States are just people who can't pay for healthcare. Mm. It's, actually, the United States has a universal healthcare system. It's called emergency rooms. If you can get yourself to an emergency room somehow, they'll take care of you, often very good care. It's the most expensive, cruelest form of universal health care imaginable. And that's true on other measures too. I mean, take something as simple as uh, maternal leave, you know, support for a mother after a baby's born. It's virtually universal. The U.S. doesn't have any. Mm -hmm. And it's joined by a few uh, Pacific islands, literally. And this goes across the board. In fact, there are regular studies of it. There's an international social justice measure that's done, uh, I think it's under UN auspices, which uh, just they just came out with a report not long ago for the last uh, 10 years, last decade, 163 countries. Uh, all of them had some degree of improvement in social welfare measures, except for three. Three that declined. Uh, Hungary, Brazil, United States, which declined most. It's mostly the Trump years. It's, uh, uh, and that's class war. It's, a, it's not, the issue isn't the gold standard, it's what you do with the opportunities to fund things. Can I ask, right. 
May I ask you, what options specifically were unavailable to government on a gold standard that were subsequently made available by going off of it that are socially necessary? Well, the New Deal, for example, the government had to basically drop those restrictions to get the country out of the Depression, and it did. Actually, it wasn't so much the New Deal that got the country out of the Depression. Of course, it had. It did. It was greatly beneficial. That's my childhood. I remember it very well. My family were mostly unemployed working people. It was very beneficial to them. It didn't actually end the Depression. Depression was ended by huge government expenditures, breaking all the rules in the Second World War, which was very beneficial to the economy. Nobody worried about the gold standard. You spent what you needed. Uh, manufacturing uh, practically quadrupled uh, uh, huge technological developments, laid the basis for post-war uh, uh, prosperity. Uh, and in fact, if you use government funding, almost, with, I mean, there of course are ultimately some limits, but if you are printing your own currency, uh, you can basically do it without severe limits unless you run into extreme inflationary pressures. But uh, that's all very, can be very beneficial to the society. Isn't that but, just a way of increasing the tax rate though on the population in a more surreptitious way? Well, the tax, tax rates are, if you look at them basically flat, uh, the United States, if you look at all the taxes, not just income tax, but payroll tax, uh, sales tax, and so on, it ends up being essentially flat across the income distribution. Uh, now, under Trump, it's shifted. Now, it's less at the top end. As I said, that's back to a century ago. Uh, under, during the neoliberal period, the last 40, 50 years, 45 years, uh, the taxes have been shifted, they've been reduced for the, for the corporate, sharply reduced for the corporate sector and uh, for the rich, which means somebody else pays the poor, or else you just pay in lower services, uh, worse services. Because uh, if, you, if you don't have government funding for available for health care, maternal leave, vacation, so on and so forth, then course, people will suffer. And in fact, uh, it's what's happened. Services, uh, benefits for the population have significantly declined over the neoliberal years, as indeed have wages. Uh, take, say, the minimum wage, which sets a kind of floor under wages. It's actually declined by about a third in real value during the neoliberal period. That's quite a blow to people. Uh, real non-supervisory male workers are actually have lower real wages than they had 40 years ago. But meanwhile, uh, management salaries have just gone into the stratosphere. That's way beyond anything in, in history mm -hmm. by other countries. Well, that's policy. That's what you can do with uh, government policy. So that, this seems to be all 
related to inflation to at least some extent, though. Um, inflation? Inflate, yeah, but inflation itself is a form of taxation. Mm-hmm. And, and isn't that also driving managerial compensation packages? And that through these, you know, they're basically able to borrow money cheap, perform stock buybacks. Uh, a lot of their compensation is based on stock options. So, no, but that, that's not because of inflation. That's in order to make money by paying yourself instead of producing. But uh, the United States hasn't had an inflation problem since the 70s. I mean, right now, there's what's called an inflation problem, but that's for very special reasons. Inflation has been very low. In fact, low below Fed levels in recent years. Well, by Fed, Fed definitions, though, by CPI, which is a it's a not an accurate metric, let's say. <laughs> Doesn't matter whatever measure you use, inflation's been actually below two percent. Sometimes it's almost been negative. Mm. You can tell it from the way people uh, buy and sell. But inflation hasn't been a problem. Maybe, maybe problem, it's sorry. Hmm. Maybe it's better to ask it this way. So there's since 1971, there's been a divergence between productivity and wages, as you described, real wages declining despite productivity increasing. So has that not contributed to the uh, widening divergence of the rich and poor? Sure. As productivity, I mean, up until the late 70s, about during the, basically the New Deal period, post-New Deal period, the wages tracked productivity, as you'd expect. That broke in the late 70s. Since then, productivity increases, wages stagnated. The extra wealth produced goes into very few pockets. So sure, that increases inequality. In fact, there's pretty good evidence that the uh, union density is a major factor in inequality. There's a recent study by Lawrence Summers and uh, one of his associates, I've forgotten who, who showed that, uh, showed pretty convincingly that uh, as union membership declines, inequality goes up and mm-hmm. conversely. And it's apparently a large share in their estimate as a major share in the increasing inequality. And notice that that's part of the neoliberal program too. It's very anti-labor. Uh, Reagan started it off right away. Same with Thatcher in England at the same time. Their first acts were to attack labor, to attack labor unions, uh, which using what in the world are considered illegal means, like uh, scabs, mm. permanent replacement workers. Uh, that's a They'd blow at unions, but then opened the door to the corporate sector, which sort of do the same. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, NLRB was basically neutralized. The laws weren't applied, so uh, employers could use all sorts of illegal means to uh, break strikes, prevent organizing. Uh, Clinton contributed to this too. So take NAFTA. Uh, NAFTA opened, among other things, it it shifted uh, employment uh, abroad. That's part of the intent. So increases profit, reduces jobs. But uh, 
it also undermined labor organizing. There's actually a study that was taken under NAFTA rules by uh, Kate Bronfen Brenner. She's a, a labor historian at uh, Cornell, which found that uh, a large percentage, I think it might have been as much as 50% of organizing efforts were simply broken by illegal uh, moves by corporations to threaten to move the business to Mexico if you try to organize. That, that's substantial. Hmm. They didn't intend to move through on the threat, but it's enough to block organizing. Meanwhile, all sorts of so-called scientific methods of strike breaking have been developed. There are now businesses that specialize in how to break strikes. But most of it's illegal. But if you don't, if you have a criminal state, it doesn't matter if it's illegal. Right. Let, let me ask. So I, we'll segue into that topic next. But one more question about this. So in your view, is there a connection then between the 1971 decoupling of the gold standard and the decoupling of productivity and wages? No. No connection at all. No, no real connection. The question was how it was going to be used. I mean, the country was at a, had an economic problem in the late 60s. It was called stagflation. But uh, that was one reason for the break of the gold standard. But the main reason was just the country was running out of gold. Right. Because we were printing too much currency. Yeah. But that's, uh, you know, that had no effect on things like wages. The stagflation was for several reasons. One, there were huge expenditures to fund the war in Vietnam, Indochina wars. And uh, there was so much resistance in the country that Johnson couldn't do, couldn't say, uh, institute a national mobilization. During the Second World War, there were extraordinary expenses, but they were actually good for the economy because there was imposition of a rigid system, which price controls and so on, rationing, which the population accepted because they were committed to the war effort. As I say, I can remember that vividly. You just accepted it. You can't drive, uh, you know, you have to have a victory garden. You don't have all the food you want. Okay, we're doing it because we want to win the war. Huge expenses, but uh, supported by the population. Johnson couldn't do that. Population was not in a mood to uh, uh, sacrifice in order to fight a war that they didn't like. So you ended up with stagflation. Well, some kind of move had to be made. It was finally made by Folker under Carter, 1978, in a very brutal way, sent the country into a deep depression, recession, deep, not quite depression, and it also very much harmed other countries. The third world countries that had uh, been induced by the World Bank to take huge loans uh, like Mexico, uh, their economies crashed. When U.S. interest rates went up, their interest rates were keyed to U.S. interest rates. 
So when US interest rates went up, they couldn't pay the debts and they went into steep decline. So it had a big effect all over the world, including in the United States. But uh, I think this is not the reason for the decline in wages. That's policy. Okay, so you know, you've mentioned that limited liability for a corporate entity is a problem, right? It's there's not there's a problem. It's oh, it's a gift. But there's a cost, right? Who's bearing the cost of that limited liability? Well, there's a cost, but again, it depends how it's used. So take, say, 19th century corporations, which had limited liability. What was a corporation in 1850s? Well, it was like uh, people in a town getting together, uh, deciding to incorporate for a particular purpose, let's say, build a bridge across the river. So you incorporate, you get limited liability and enables you to accumulate capital. People don't, it means that an individual doesn't himself lose, lose if there's a problem. So you can accumulate capital, you can carry out the job and then you end the corporation. That's what a corporation was, not always, but that's a large part of it. Now the modern corporations are quite different. They're the and here it's not a question of whether the corporation, you know, uh, my own feeling is that there shouldn't be such a right, but that's a different issue. Uh, of limited so, liability? Hmm? You said there should not be a right of limited liability? Well, I take the same position as uh, basically the Republican Party under Abraham Lincoln, uh, namely that uh, serving a master is uh, subordinating yourself to a master is an intolerable attack on human rights and human dignity. That was also the position of working people in the 19th century. Goes back millennia, back to Greece and Rome. But uh, the industrial system, when it was established, imposed subordination of of uh, skilled workers, artisans, others to a master. That was and was bitterly fought. Mm. And as I say, it was so strenuously opposed, it was even a slogan of the Republican Party. Uh, but it finally established itself. So what we call taking a job, which was considered outrageous in the 19th century, uh, basically means agreeing to spend most of your working out your waking hours under the control of a tyrant. Hmm. That's what it means when you have a job. Somebody else has the authority. They can tell you you're allowed to take a bathroom break at 3 p.m. You can talk to one of your friends for five minutes. And uh, if you're a truck driver, you can't take a stop to get some coffee. That's subordination to a tyrant, to tyranny what was bitterly attacked in the 19th century finally became acceptable. I don't think it should be. Mm. And isn't the, the antidote to that tyranny though, is the individual workers option to leave, right? They don't, they don't have to subject themselves to the tyranny. Yeah, it's starve. You can starve or you can subject yourself to tyranny. Actually one of the first, to tell you an anecdote, when I was a college student, Harvard grad student, 
there was an invited lecture by Ludwig von Mises, the mm. revered guru of the libertarian movement. And the thesis of the lecture was uh, that it's th that unemployment is the fault of the government. Mm. If you didn't have the government intruding, you wouldn't have any employment. And he gave a good argument. He said, uh, let's suppose that uh, some guy, you know, Joe, uh, is uh, doesn't have a job, starving, doesn't have a place to live, and he's offered a rotten, dangerous job at uh, a dollar an hour. Well, rather than starve to death, he'd take it. But then the evil government moves in and establishes conditions for employment, uh, worker safety, a minimum wage, and all kind of intervention in the market. And therefore, poor Joe can't work, and he's unemployed. So it's the fault of the government. And that basically is the libertarian position. Mm -hmm. It's the reason, for example, why von Mises uh, was a strong supporter of fascism. If you read his classic book uh, on liberalism back in 1927, he was in Austria then. That's a, a lot of it's just an ode to Mussolini. He said Mussolini's fascism had saved European civilization. It uh, was done with the best of intentions. It, uh, uh, it, uh, uh, what Mussolini's fascism had done was destroy the labor unions, destroy social democracy, destroy independent thought. Uh, uh, people like Gramsci were sent to prison to keep that mind from functioning, as they said. All of that was great. They will go down in history as saving civilization. Now, if you look at uh, the Mises organization, uh, they have an explanation of why this was okay. They say, well, von Mises thought that the block shirts would go away once they'd done their job. Yeah, fine extenuation, then go away. Uh, von Mises himself could barely contain his euphoria when the proto-fascist Austrian government in 1928 uh, crushed the vibrant labor movement by force. And there's a principle behind this. The principle is that labor unions do interfere with the market. If you have a pure market, it'll be like this guy, Joe, that I mentioned, who has a choice between starving or taking a rotten job. Then the market is functioning properly. But labor unions come in and try to give special privileges to workers, meaning uh, if it's a very dangerous job, uh, you have to have some protection. You have to have health, uh, occupational standards, and you have to have uh, a wage sufficient so you can at least, uh, you know, maybe uh, buy, buy, feed your children a little bit. And that interferes with what's called sound economics. Mm -hmm. Sound economics means just let market principles function, which now when you get to the neoliberal period, they did sort of accept the neoliberal, the libertarian doctrines, Friedman, others, but with plenty of qualifications. 
So the government is sitting back there to make sure you don't get into trouble. Uh, if, if you run into trouble, the friendly taxpayer comes in and bails you out. That's not called an interference with sound economics. Right. Only if labor unions try to raise wages, that's an interference. That's interesting. I've, I've studied Mises a lot, but I hadn't heard about that. So I'll look into it. Let me ask you this question about, so presumably this gift of limited liability, the cost of that gift presumably is borne by anyone that's affected, right? If, if, if the corporation builds the bridge and the bridge collapses, the victims of the bridge collapse are not being compensated by virtue of limited liability. So they're bearing the cost of the gift. My oh, question is, isn't that's, printing that's the story? Suppose the bridge remains, hmm. then everybody benefits from the bridge. Right. So yes, you're taking a risk, but there's a benefit associated with it. Understood. My question would be, isn't printing currency or a monopoly on currency production, let's say, effectively a form of limited liability for government? Because they can now spend and incur debts at, at their leisure and, and discretion and then externalize the cost of that spending and debt accumulation via inflation. I understand. That's an interesting way to look at it. Your, the presupposition of your question is that the government is some alien entity, like somebody from Mars, which is coming in and doing things to us. There's another view of government, that government is of, by, and for the people. It's just an institution of the people. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's another view of government. In that case, if you look at government that way, as an ideal that we should approach, then it's the people who are deciding Yes, I want to have expenditures so there'll be mm. safe jobs, maternity leave, health care, uh, decent conditions for at schools, education, and so on. That's the community and a bridge and infrastructure bridges that don't collapse. Uh, that's the community that's deciding through the instrument that the that the community controls, called the government. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an ideal. We don't quite have that. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's a way of looking at government, which is the opposite of holding that the government is some alien entity that is doing things that might harm us. Perhaps it's we could narrow the scope of the question to the central bank then, rather than just the government in general, because the central bank is producing currency without, they're unelected, right? There's no legislation that is uh, enabling them to expand this taxation via inflation. So is it is the central bank effectively a limited liability corporation um, well, in the market for money? Bank. Well, the central bank is kind of a mixture of a quasi-political institution. The Fed chair is chosen by the executive. Uh, the members of the board are chosen by the government, then the Fed has, the central bank has a pretty uh, free authority. And that doesn't, it's not used to create inflation. It's used to cut back wages. That's the function of the central bank. If inflation goes beyond 2%, you raise rates, 
which cuts employment. That's the main function of the central bank. Let's cut employment, harm workers, so that the economy continues to function. Now, if you look at the Fed, our, our central bank, it actually has two prime commitments. One of them is to keep inflation from going too high. The other is to foster full employment. Mm -hmm. Pay much attention to the second one, mm -hmm. but those are social, political, and economic uh, uh, conditions that come from the nature of the society, not from the nature of a central bank. Mm -hmm. Central, you could have a central bank which serves both purposes. I should and, say, if you go back a little bit, you, the onset of the neoliberal assault on the population goes back a couple of years before Reagan started in the late Carter years, uh, 1978. Uh, the Democrats made their last gesture towards doing something for the working class, uh, the Humphrey Hawkins uh, full employment bill which was passed by Congress. Uh, President Carter didn't, who was anti-labor, he didn't veto it, but he watered it down so that it had so no teeth, became basically voluntary. And that was essentially the onset of the neoliberal period. And working people understood it. Mm -hmm. uh, there was um, Doug Fraser, who was the head of the UAW, United Auto Workers, in 1978, uh, left, uh, uh, resigned from a labor management committee that Carter had established. Resignation was partly because of the watering down of the bill. And he made a very powerful, eloquent statement. He said, business is now fighting a one-sided class war against working people the poor, most of the middle class, they've abandoned the compact, tacit compact of the post-war years that there would be cooperation in maintaining basic decent living standards. Business has broken with that. Now it's a one-sided class war. And that's what neoliberalism is. I gave you some measures of it. But there's more, of course. Uh, but these are largely political decisions, e even markets. Uh, markets don't run on their own. Markets are set up by governments and they determine how they're gonna function. Mm. So there's no such thing as just a market functioning by itself. In fact, if you look over history, the business classes have regularly intervened to prevent markets from functioning because they would simply destroy everything. If you allowed a market to function without constraints, everything would get total chaos and crash. So the business world has repeatedly intervened to uh, try to pressure government, which it greatly influences, to impose market regulation simply to keep it from imploding. Things like regulatory commissions, for example. Hmm. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. 
Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So let me ask you then, what is the proper role of coercion in civilized society? I mean, my understanding of, of government is really to just, at least in Western civilization, to preserve life, liberty, and property. Is there anything beyond the scope of that? Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is the phrase that was used by Thomas mm -hmm. Jefferson. Produce, protect property was James Madison. James Madison, who was the main framer of the Constitution, held that the a prime responsibility of government is to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority, I'm quoting. Mm. Now, that's how the country was set up. If you look at the constitutional system, the Madisonian system, though the main power was in the Senate, in those days, the executive was kind of an administrator, and the House was, of course, scattered. Mm -hmm. The Senate was the major power center, and Madison was very clear about this. He said, yes, the Senate must be the dominant institution, and it has to be protected from the public. So it was unelected. Till 1912, the Senate was unelected. It's basically picked by elites. Furthermore, senators get long terms, six years, so they're not subject to public pressure, mm -hmm. and they're not distributed by population, so two per state. You know. uh, and the Senate, as Madison put it, should be the wealth of the nation, his phrase. Mm -hmm. People who understand the right and sympathize with the rights of property owners. That's the Constitution. You take a look at the this is well understood. You look at the scholarly literature, it's very good scholarly literature on this. The gold standard in scholarship now, rightly, is a very important work by Harvard Law Professor Michael Klarman. The, uh, it's the main book on the Constitution, Forming the Constitution, very interesting book. He, uh, the, the title of the book is The Framers' Coup. C-O-U-P, the framers' coup, their coup against democracy. The radical farmers, uh, the people who had served in the Revolutionary Army, uh, they wanted democracy. Uh, the elites didn't want it. I remember who the framers were, who was able to sit in Philadelphia for a couple of months over the summer or even get there. This is the 18th century, after all. The founders were a group of wealthy white men, 
mostly slave owners. Very impressive group in many ways. If you read the debates at the Constitutional Convention, they're pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, so not demeaning the individuals, but their class origins were very explicit. So it's understandable that the Constitution was set up as a coup by the wealthy against democracy, mm -hmm. which regarded as a serious danger. He didn't want to have the public, the, what Alexander Hamilton called the great beast. Uh, they can only cause trouble. And that goes on in democratic theory uh, right into the 20th century. I could give you details, but it's basically the, it's basically what's called liberal democratic theory. Liberal democratic theory. I'm not talking about the harsher parts. It basically holds that the public, well, I'll quote Walter Lippmann, leading liberal intellectual of the 20th century, public intellectual. He's a Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy liberal. He wrote a lot about uh, formation of government. His view, I'll quote it, was that the public have to be put in their place as spectators, not participants. And the responsible men, the elites, have to be protected from the roar and the trampling of the bewildered herd. Uh, others agreed, like uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who's greatly respected as uh, sometimes called the theologian of the establishment, liberal establishment. Uh, his view was that people are too stupid and ignorant, quoting, to uh, enter into affairs of state. They have to be fed necessary illusions, emotionally potent simplifications in order to keep them in line so the responsible men can act in the public interest. Now you look at the foundations of political science. Take Harold Laswell, one of the founders, also a Roosevelt liberal. It says uh, we should not be seduced by democratic dogmatisms about people being the best judges of their own interests. They're not. Uh, we are the responsible men. Uh, in the Kennedy years, they were called the technocratic uh, policy-oriented elite. They are the ones who understand how to do things, just keep the people out of this. And uh, that's a th the United States didn't invent it. You go back to the British establishment of British democracy century earlier, exactly the same. Isn't this the entire concept is very anti-human freedom? The idea that someone knows what's best for you better than you know yourself right. as an adult. I mean, this seems to contradict the very principles of democracy itself. It's intended to predict it. Democracy was considered as a danger. Mm. There's nothing hidden about it. You read Hamilton, mm. Madison, others, they're quite, it's quite open. Mm. It goes beyond what I just said. I mean, one of the reasons actually had to do with inflation. Uh, one of the big debates during the Constitutional Convention was whether states could issue paper money. Mm. Now, the, uh, that would have led to inflation. What was going on? The population wanted it. Mm. During the revolution, the population suffered badly. Country was much worse off. 
after the victory than before. It was costly, not just in money. People in the Revolutionary Army suffered, their families suffered. Mm. Meanwhile, the speculators benefited enormously. There were speculators who lent the convention money to keep fighting the war, and they made huge profits. Well, the population wanted inflation, which mm -hmm. benefits the debtors, uh, mm -hmm. arms, the lenders. They wanted to wipe out the speculative gains during the Revolutionary War and benefit themselves. That was one of the big issues in the right. convention. And it was paper money was blocked almost everywhere. I think Rhode Island may have kept it, but nobody else. So there seems to be perhaps this endless struggle between what free market participants are selecting for themselves and what state actors are attempting to um, provide structure to the market or some element of coercion to preserve peace or, or whatever it may be. Well, is this quite... something we could ever overcome? Like, you know, I'm thinking through the lens of, of something like Bitcoin, if the free market selects Bitcoin as money and, and uh, disregards the central bank or, or um, let's say selects Bitcoin instead of the central bank, shouldn't we honor what the market is choosing? Doesn't, isn't that a reflection of what most people want? No, it's not. That's a myth. The market doesn't reflect what most people want. Mm. The mark, if one of the myths of libertarianism is that it's, it's not a myth, but the misleading parts is that it solves the calculation problem. That's supposed to be a big achievement. You know about this. Mm -hmm. Economic so, calculation, yes. Um, and it does solve it. But the question that's not asked is, does it solve it in a sensible way? So let's imagine a society where a small group where uh, say a hundred people are multi-billionaires and uh, a million people are barely surviving. Uh, well, the market solves the calculation problem by producing super yachts for the millionaire billionaires and a bag of potato chips for everyone else. Yeah, that does solve it. It even gives you Pareto equilibrium. But is that what we want? Who says the market solution is worth anything? The market solution depends on distribution of wealth. So then the alternative is some element of coercion. So who do we give the keys to coerce? It's not coercion. It's decisions by a democratic society that this is the kind of place we want to live in. Nobody's being coerced. It's, of course, people who don't want to live in a democratic society, yeah, they'll be coerced. So, for example, people who say, uh, I don't want to stop at a red light. Okay, they're being coerced. If you don't want to live by community norms, you can call that coercion. But the question is whether a community has the right to democratically decide, here's the kind of society we want. Markets are on the side, like a democratic community might decide to use the market for informational purposes. You know, tells you something, gives you information that you can use for decision making. But uh, uh, turning the market into some holy institution is a joke. A business doesn't want it. It's never functioned. It would be totally destructive. Society couldn't survive 
if the, if, any, if a market was instituted. In fact, we see that right very obviously right now. I mean, suppose that the market worked for uh, energy production. We'd all be dead. We'd all be living off uh, fossil fuels as long as they exist, and pretty soon uh, life on Earth would be over. Pretty soon, in fact, the market is totally destructive. Doesn't pay any attention to people's needs and rights. In fact, we're facing that right now with the uh, external, so-called external, you know, the externalization of costs that is inherent in markets. I mean, there's all kinds of claims you could price it in, but that's ridiculous. When you start to price it in, it becomes a bureaucracy so complex that you can't even imagine it. Well, my understanding is as, as costs are externalized, it would again be the integrity of private property rights that would price in that externalization. So if you're dumping pollution in my river, I could sue you or I could take some legal recourse against you. And that would impute the cost of that externalization. So if if uh, ExxonMobil is heating up the atmosphere and destroying, uh, killing your children, you can take ExxonMobil to court. Good luck. Right. I, yeah, I would presume it would be class action at that point. If it's yeah. First of all, class action is extremely difficult to organize, and it's now being barred by the reactionary Supreme Court. These are all jokes. You can teach that in a seminar if you like. It has nothing to do with life. I mean, so, just look at And first of all, look at property. Where'd property come from? You go back, property comes originally from enclosures, violent enclosures, which took away the commons that were commonly available to people, forcefully expelled people from them, handed them over to private ownership, goes down in the generations, uh, properties, or take something right in front of our eyes, or take the vaccine. Let's take Moderna, for example. They created a vaccine. A couple of, uh, uh, of executives are now super billionaires. Uh, where'd that come from? Well, it came from decades of research investigation paid for by the public at research universities, government laboratories, developing the basic, the basis for the, what became the mRNA, mRNA technology. Uh, Moderna was a struggle, small struggling company. They did, they picked up these gifts, huge gifts from the public, picked them up, turned them into something marketable. Then because of the radical anti-free trade agreements, they get a monopoly pricing right on it for a huge period, not only the product right, but even the process right, which means that billions of people in the third world can't produce it, even though they have institutions that could because of our radical anti-free trade principles of libertarians in the United States, which impose these rules, okay? And therefore they can become uh, billionaires. Well, and it's good for us. Like I had a Moderna vaccine, I'm glad I had it, but it's deprived, other people are deprived. 
That's the way a quasi-market with massive government intervention works. So Same let me ask you one last question here. Do you still identify then as an anarcho-syndicalist? Yeah. So what is the proper role of market and state in that worldview? Well, if you look at the literature, they're anti-state. But that means anti a particular kind of state, a state which is an instrument of class rule. If you had a democratic, if you had a, a society in which, say, uh, institutions were democratically controlled, say a, an enterprise that's producing something would be controlled by the participants democratically, they would run it. They would pick representatives who could do special things, re recallable if they don't like what they're doing, and so on. And the same with communities, democratically controlled, associations among them, free associations on to higher levels, maybe internationally. If you could have a society like that, uh, these questions wouldn't arise. It would be, uh, the, the community would decide freely and democratically in cooperation with others, with concern for the needs of others, not just greed for myself, not Ayn Rand, not Milton Friedman, but concern for the, the needs and uh, just rights of others in a society that worked like that. Uh, you, wouldn't ha you would have, of course, coercion, meaning, say, if somebody insists, I want to drive through a red light, community would have the right to prevent them. Actually, that's a very live issue right now. Suppose that uh, workers in a restaurant decide that they want a safe space where uh, they can be safe from people spreading COVID. Well, somebody says, Sarah Palin, last couple of days, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to go into it, even though I, I have, I refuse to get vaccinated and I'm infected. I don't want to. Well, in that case, I think coercion is legitimate. Hmm. Just like hmm. somebody wants to drive through red lights. But those are ways in which communities can create uh, viable, healthy, functioning communities working for the good of the general public. Interesting. So, okay. Uh, just one last following question. It, it seems like the this democratically selected community environment, this seems to be, this sounds to me a lot like the free market where you're actually selecting what you want by buying and selling, right? You're, if you buy a house, you're saying, I want more houses. If you sell a car, I want less cars. Yeah, how do, so how do we reconcile that then the market to this coercive free market everyone has a vote and the vote depends on your wealth mm. so if you're a billionaire you have a billion votes mm -hmm. if you're a homeless guy in the street you have if you're lucky one vote in the market that's what's called a free market it has nothing like democracy it's the opposite of democracy isn't the successful entrepreneur, though, accountable to the wishes of consumers to become wealthy? Take successful entrepreneurs like the Moderna billionaires or like Bill Gates or like uh, 
take Bill Gates. I think he would frankly tell you what happened. Take your, you probably have a laptop computer, mm-hmm. maybe Apple, Windows, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Where'd that come from? Same as the vaccines. Decades of research, risky, inventive, creative research in the public sector, paid for by the public, research universities, like the one where I spent almost my whole life, MIT, back in the 50s, 60s, I was part of that people, working, developing the basis of what became funny computers, of all publicly fund, almost all publicly funded, few exceptions. Uh, after many years, uh, it became possible for Steve Jobs, he was the first one, to figure out how to turn this into something marketable. I think it was 1997, I think, when they were able to make a marketable computer. He made a contribution, no doubt. The first Apple computers were a contribution, small contribution. The major contribution had already been made by the public. Uh, They don't get the profit. The system as it works is basically public subsidy, private profit. Uh, That's property rights. Then come along the uh, so-called free trade agreements, which are radically anti-free trade, and they add on monopoly monopoly pricing rights and the monopoly control. That's what we call the free market. (laughs) So the the public then is subsidizing the say the research and development on the computer as you described through right, coercion right they're paying via inflation or taxation is funding these public subsidies that then steve jobs makes marketable it wasn't an inflationary period the 50s and 60s i'm sorry i'm just referring to taxation and inflation when i say inflation i mean just expansion of the currency supply they're both means of government revenue it's taxation yes actually very regressive taxation because even with the progressive income tax taxation tends to be pretty flat yeah but we do have a regressive taxation system which funds the basic work that creates the advanced society the future Mm. it's pretty well in, in other countries they call it industrial policy we're not allowed to use that phrase because we have a uh, ideology which claims that we're all in favor of uh, free markets, which is a joke, but it's industrial policy. It's just uh, done. In fact, it's interesting to see the way it was done. Go back to the 50s and the 60s, it was mostly done through the Pentagon. The Pentagon is the one institution in the society that Congress doesn't question. Pentagon says we need more money, they get it. So the way to develop the high-tech society was to fund it through the Pentagon. Actually, I was working in these places. The lab where I worked, Research Lab of Electronics at MIT, was 100% funded by the Pentagon. They didn't pay any attention to what you were doing. It was perfectly free. They understood perfectly well, you're just doing research, development, you know, it's a job. didn't have to ask grant requests. Uh, nobody came around to see what you were doing. Uh, this was so extreme 
that by the late 60s, Congress began to take notice. In, I think, 1969, it must have been, uh, there was uh, Mike Mansfield, Senator Mansfield, uh, passed legislation, the Mansfield Amendment, which said that anything funded by the DOD has to have a definite military purpose. Before that, it didn't. Of course, the military used it. They use everything. You know, whatever you're doing, the military will use it. Mm -hmm. But it was the, the work itself had no really specific military purpose, marginally. But the 69 amendment at least officially changed that. I think the main change, if anybody researched it, it's my experience, would be that what it basically changed is the way people wrote research grants. So instead of saying, here's what I want to do, fund me, they said, here's what I want to do. Here's some way maybe you could fancifully imagine using it for the military. Then here's what I want to do. Hmm. You know? Interesting. Well, Noam, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, thank you so much for coming on. You know, again, great debt of gratitude to you and your work uh, being an intellectual pioneer and rebel in the world. So thank you. Um, thank you. Could you Good please... If my audience wants to find out more about you or your work, where should they go? It's a lot of books, a lot <laughs> of stuff that comes out regularly. Am I, I have regular uh, uh, pieces that come out and uh, uh, websites uh, like uh, Truthout, for example, every couple of weeks, other places, lots of talks, whole, dozens of books. One of they keep coming out, mostly small, small publishers, marginal publishers, big publishers don't want them, but they're there. You look up Amazon, you can find them all. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Noam. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.